Hello and welcome to The Wind Thieved Hat, a series of podcasts where I explore the creative process, the highs, the lows, the joy and the pain with some of my favourite artists and makers. In this episode, I join my mate Algie Batten, the softly spoken but hugely inspiring Algie, who was recently included in the list of the world's 100 makers and mavericks, talks about his latest project, The Art of Ping Pong, as well as the lessons he's learned through a career in design. Our conversation covers perseverance, the danger of people-pleasing, and why you should never be afraid to embrace change. The interview was recorded on a blisteringly hot day last summer in a busy post-production studio, so it's a bit noisy at points, but the noises don't last too long. While we're on the subject of noise, regular listeners will be delighted to hear that I've finally got two lapel mics, so the next episodes are going to be an object lesson in exquisite sound recording. Maybe. Anyway, make yourself comfortable. Off we go. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Mr. Algie Batten. Good morning. Good afternoon, in I was fact. I going to say, good afternoon, we've just had lunch. Yeah. yeah. It's been a little while setting this one up, it seems <laughs> yeah. like ages. <laughs> the following morning. Algy is a man who is, by his own admission, small in stature, but a giant, creatively, and that's why I'm very pleased to have you here today. Algy's been the founder of a very successful design studio, Five Foot Six. Co-founder. Yep. Co-founder of yep. uh, Five Foot Six, um, a reference to the aforementioned stature. Um, and more recently, he's the prime mover behind a super exciting project called The Art of Ping Pong, which we will come to in due course. Algie is a very lovely human being and a shining example of the value of having a side project, which is something that I'm hoping we can get into a little bit later on. Good stuff. Are you sitting comfortably? I am, yes. It's a very Thank hot you. day, isn't it? It is remarkably hot. Yeah, we almost did we this. tend to complain too easily. I'll take this over a shitty yeah. summer any day. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, so, let's begin. Well, you're back from a weekend in the Welsh countryside. I am indeed. A weekend at the Do Lectures. How did you find it? Uh, absolutely exhausting. Yeah. Um, I loved it. Uh, as you know, we met last year at last year's Do Lectures. Um, and this one was probably a little bit... It felt more intense. Um it's just back-to-back of inspiring, engaging, or uh, semi-stressful talks. Yeah. Um, with not much time in between, the odd workshop, some very in-depth banter with the rest of the attendees, and then back into more workshops at about 80 degrees heat in a barn in Wales. It's well, good. Well, God bless you for turning up yeah, to do this pleasure. today. You look like a man who's been a little bit over-inspired, actually. <laughs> So, uh, I'd like to kick off by zeroing in on one biographical detail that I discovered when I was doing my Ooh, research intriguing. on you over yeah. the weekend, in, in, in not a creepy way, I hope. I read that as a kid, you spent a lot of time scratching out and obscuring oh, right. okay. logos on yeah. things. And I thought yeah. it was very interesting for a man who would later yes. forge a career out <laughs> of coming up with brand identities. Yes. Uh, it's something I've only thought about recently. Um, I remember sort of uh, the beauty of a product or its design then being ruined by these sort of sticky plaster logos that were put on whatever they might have been, but I, you know, a little tennis racket or a pair of shoes or even a stereo or whatever, and not really liking the fact that I was 
showcasing a, a make, more makes, not brands back then. And so if they could peel off, I would peel them off and be left with... So I was quite into tennis as a kid. I probably remember it more around tennis rackets, but they would have little stickers and labels on them. Uh, And you could just peel it all off. And I never liked buying graphic... buying T-shirts with someone's logo on it or a graphic logo. Uh, And I was never really a sneakerhead, so I was never into the whole Nike sort of scene. But I lived in the countryside, so no one was, really. Um, And it was something I was quite keen to get back to the purity. I've spoken to my dad about this, actually. And he said he would do the same thing when he was a kid. Scratch off the labels. Yeah. Colour it in, whatever, scratch it off, peel it off. Yeah. Fill it in with the background colour or something else, so you're kind of really ruining its look. Was it a, um, an aesthetic thing, or, or was it just you liked it not being labelled? I think it's both. I think it's the aesthetic thing. For me, if something's been... I guess a product designer would never, in my mind, think I've created this beautiful kettle, now let's slap a sticker on it with a big ugly logo. Uh, or in my case, it was kind of old tennis rackets and stuff I don't think that was how someone envisioned something would look with a sort of logos on it especially when they've done the gradiated sort of paint colours or whatever they've done so I would peel them off and I think it was also I didn't like to be part of a particular clan or group around a particular um, brand as such I never really bought into the whole brand or make following in that way and so I didn't want to be felt like I was party to some sort of yeah. some sort of bigger company yeah. whilst I think you could be quite want to be part of a clan in your own right yeah. and, and form your own sort of little gangs or whatever and I mean uh, countryside gangs not proper street gangs um, but yeah I, I didn't like the whole um, sort of corporate side of, 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 of owning something mm. it was my tennis racket not Prince's tennis racket or Wilson's tennis racket mine now quite right too yeah well, I'm, I'm sure if this were a psychological podcast, we could delve a lot deeper into <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure. But, um, Especially if there's someone who then goes into branding. There's definitely yeah. something there. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. Um, tell me then about your, your sort of early life. So you, you grew up in the countryside, did yeah. you? Yeah, born in uh, Leicester and grew up in a little village about 20 minutes outside of Leicester. About five kids in the village. Right. So you might think you're pretty good at something, which is actually quite becomes quite relevant later if we get into a ping pong story. If you're the best kid on a BMX in a village of five, you think you're pretty cool. And then you get exposed to uh, a Saturday morning BMX show or something, and you see these kids who are really good at it, you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Jumping over three kids off a ramp is not actually that impressive. Uh, so yeah, grew up in a small village. Um, I mean, back in the day when, obviously, pre-all the stuff, didn't watch too much telly, used to make a lot of dens, just running, running wild in the, in, the, in, the, in the village, really. I remember... It was like a special occasion. I can't remember how old I would have been, maybe seven or eight or something. On my birthday, we would rent a video player from the garage. <laughs> so we'd get videos once a year. Um, but I think things were like that more those days. Yeah, yeah, it was a big event, wasn't and it? If a film a video. came out in the cinema, unlikely I was going to see it. You'd have to wait three or four years before the VHS version came out. So uh, it taught you to be patient, I think. Yeah. Yeah. A valuable life skill. Absolutely. Something, something I've forgotten. But it is an important life skill. And how did you end up in a situation where, where, where somebody started paying you for the ideas that you would come up with? Uh, I suppose going back to way back before them paying me, I used to make these. Uh, I think I think I must have showed signs of being quite entrepreneurial as a young lad. I used to make. I got into that. Uh, the fantasy figure, fantasy game world. Um, I was probably about ten, 
and I saved up to get a little rubber mould that you pour lead into to make fantasy figures. Yeah. Um, and my dad had a, a sort of uh, an off-licence in the local town, actually two or three. So there's always quite a lot of wine in the house, and I would peel off the lead uh, wraps around the cork. Yeah. And I would melt them down in the garage over a camp over a little Bunsen, uh, what they call camping stove thing. It's probably not ideal, looking back on it, being a windowless <laughs> melting lead. Uh, and I would pour it into these little rubber moulds and make these fantasy figures and paint them. And then I started making fantasy, fantasy figure uh, chess sets that I would sell in uh, local bric-a-brac shops and car boot, um, car boot sales on the weekend. And that's probably what sort of got me into making things. I would, and then I, from there, the fantasy figures became more about um, making jewellery. Although I'm not sure lead jewellery is a particular thing. It, should, it, should, it was it fine in the 80s. Off. Yeah, exactly. People ate this stuff um, in the 80s. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I got into making jewellery. Uh, and I, there was a local sort of uh, tiny little jewellery store. And I befriended the guy that ran it. And um, I was saving up for a wood tumbler. Uh, not a wood tumbler, I'm talking about a stone tumbler. So it, w- it would smooth the edges off stones and I could use them for making jewellery. And at, the, at that time, I was so by then I think I was doing my A-levels, actually. Uh, and I hadn't done art as an A-level. I'd done design along with English. And I didn't apply to university. So, so the fantasy figure thing was age in 10, so this is like eight years later. Didn't want to go to university to do something I wasn't interested in. And a lot of mates were just going just to go to university. I mean, it was, you didn't come out with so much debt then, so it probably an easier choice. But um, they were going to go and do business studies or whatever. And I was yeah. like, I'm not really interested in studying something I'm not interested in. I wasn't particularly interested in much at school, and I don't want another three years of this unless it's something I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by. Uh, and I was chatting to this guy that had the, um, uh, the jewellery store, and he said, why don't you look into doing an art foundation? Okay. And so I thought, you know what, that's what I do want to do. But I hadn't uh, sort of thought enough about it in time. But I went to, so when I left school, I went to that year's uh, interview and um, I showed them my A-level design portfolio and they were like, well, you haven't done art. This is an art foundation. And you can't get in without an art portfolio. I went, ah, that bit no one told me about. So, uh, so I, I, I turned around and, and felt a bit demoralised by it, and I, and I spoke to the guy in the shop and said, "I, I haven't been accepted. I, I, you know, I haven't done art." And he's like, "Well, I used to be an art teacher. I can teach you how to draw if you like." And I was like, "You know what? That sounds amazing." Great. So I got a job on a building site from eight in the morning till two in the afternoon. Then I would go round to his uh, shop, sit in his store cupboard, and when the shop was quiet, he'd come out the back and give me a few pointers and a few tips, and I would. Um, I'd be drawing things in his store cupboard, so artifacts, sort of sculptures, bits of jewellery, that kind of stuff. What um, was his shop? Uh, it was a sort of jewellery shop, but it probably okay. had sort of ornaments and that type of thing. So you'd be sitting in the back with your sketch be, pad? Just, absolutely. Just beating yeah. away? Yeah, just what drawing. What a dude. Yeah, he, he was quite a dude. I actually, annoyingly, can't remember his name. Is it, he, they moved away a couple of years yeah. later. and um, My mum would know what his name was. Yeah. I think it was called Minerva, the jewellery store. And so he taught me how to draw enough that I could then apply to do, not the foundation, it was a much longer story than that, to go to Stanford Sixth Form College to join the RA level course. Ah, I see. But not even to get an A level. I just needed to build a, a portfolio of, yeah. of sketches and paintings. So I went to Stanford Sixth Form College, I think for one term, 
maybe maybe two can't quite remember and it was only I was only doing one course so I was only there like once a week or something uh, and over this time I um, had various other jobs not just the building site but built up a fairly crude uh, art portfolio and I went back a year later and they were like wow you're keen this isn't the best art portfolio we've ever seen but in a year you've proved you can draw and we can um, see your dedication yeah and we like your attitude but we don't know how you know we'll give you to Christmas and if you've proved us right you stay and actually if you're not if you don't cut the mustard you're out so I had a term to kind of prove that I could catch up with everyone else that had done three years worth of art maybe even longer if they'd done it at GCSE or or, um, O-levels that kind of thing how did you get on? Uh, I just scraped by that first term I failed one whatever they were called module or something and had to retake it over that Christmas but one module was failing one out of whatever it was eight was, was okay and I passed that on my resubmission and then left with a I forget what they were called maybe a distinction or, or something I forget what the grading was for that sort of thing yeah. if distinction's a top it might have been the one just below that okay. whatever it was called yeah. but yeah so no, it was good and I absolutely loved Art Foundation having not really enjoyed the academic side of school really didn't yeah. find anything that really interested me yeah. I, mean, I like design yeah. um, but it was more product based design um, it wasn't graphic design but then equally I wasn't interested in graphic design yeah. at that point either yeah. I wanted to do silversmithing yeah. so I went to Art Foundation to do silversmithing um, was my intention I see yeah. I see. so you've always been quite good with your hands yeah I don't know I haven't the annoying thing is I think maybe but I haven't drawn since that foundation course right. barely had to draw at university really draw scamp your ideas out yeah but not proper sort of I haven't done any life drawing since then and I kind of think like you know 20 five or whatever it is years later yeah. I'd probably quite like to do a bit yeah, of life drawing yeah, maybe get should. my hand back into drawing yeah because yeah. I've got a portfolio of a sort of Stop 18 looking again yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well I want to sort of spool forward a little bit um, I did mention in my preamble yes that you had your own design studio for yes. 10 years I think 5 foot 6 with Best part uh, of 11 with years a, by with, the time it was closed with a partner yeah. with a partner yeah whose name was uh, Mark McConaughey Mark McConaughey and I'm interested in that because I had a little studio for a few years okay. and how did you find maintaining the balance between your own creative fulfilment and the demands of running a business um I'd come or not I'd come from directly beforehand but one of my first jobs in London was at Brown's uh, literally a couple of months after they set up and they always used to self-publish books um, as sort of side projects to their more corporate stuff. And pretty much when I left university, all my graphic design projects were books. And so, I, and they said it openly themselves. They said, you didn't have the best portfolio we've ever seen, which is becoming a recurring theme here. <laughs> but we like your approach, your thinking, and we yeah. like the fact you love books and we like doing a few books. And so they had always sort of had their own creative uh, outlet for self-publishing. Um, and it was a long time between leaving Browns and setting up five foot six. Um, forgive the noise in the background. We're on a uh, in my friend's edit studio, and I think one of the doors is now open. Uh, and so when we, when we set up five foot six, I was I was interested in maintaining that sort of um, side project uh, um, ambition. Really, I think it's nice. To, I think what I enjoyed about design on the art foundation was that I've realised that 
why I went from doing silversmithing to, to graphics was I liked communication, I liked expression, I liked self-expression. Yeah. And I think as much as I love the creative process of working with clients, it's not always your self-expression. It's not something, it's not about you, it's, it's about them, and it's about what you can bring to it. Um, but I've always had my own sort of side stuff going on. And, and Five Foot Six was another opportunity to, um, to sort of build on that. And so we always used to make our own books and things at Five Foot Six. I have been running these workshops, yeah. creative workshops, which we have talked about. Yeah. And I am constantly surprised when I ask people around the table who make a living through yeah. their creative output. I think you've mentioned this to me before. To tell me who does something outside yeah. of work that's creative. Yeah. It's always a minority of people. Well, I just find and that occasionally amazing. no hands yeah. go up. Really? So these are people who write scripts, yeah. who design television identities. Yeah. And it seems to me that if you don't have the nourishment of something creative yeah. that you're not being paid for, yeah. then your soul, your creative soul withers yeah. a little bit. Would you yeah. say that's true? I just, I just, maybe they get enough satisfaction from the client work that they don't need anything else. Or maybe they have something completely aside that isn't a side project that still is, is, is a way of them expressing themselves. I mean, do they, they might not call it a side project. Are they into music or, you know, they must have something on the side that they... Not always. Not always. I, I don't know. For me, it was, it was, it was integral to, to making sure that you had something where you could express yourself as a business or as an individual alongside client work. And I think the two things feed well into each other and the two things benefit each other. Um, and so it became quite easy with Five Foot Six in a way because building up a team, we had more resources... And I guess you could, if you were sort of, you could see it as actually being um, self-promotion as well. Maybe if you talk about it as self-promotion and not a side project, then people can see it as having a more practical end result, that you're actually getting your name out there as a studio. Yeah. And so maybe we saw it as fulfilling a a creative need by being a side project, but actually they were still self-promotion. We would still hold a book launch. We would still hold an event around it. It got the name out there. Um, in many respects, when a when a client project m- m- might not have been something we would then had an event around, so uh, I guess we we, we saw it as self promotion as much as side projects. Yeah, and you found that having a side project, something else going on, informed yeah. the work you were making. Yeah, absolutely, to yeah, briefs. Absolutely, yeah, because you you've got c- complete freedom then at that point, and you can get the whole team involved in something, and you can have that, if there's no expectation. There's absolutely nothing, nothing you can't do. It doesn't have to achieve anything. It doesn't have to be on brief. It can, anyone in the company was allowed to come up with any idea they thought might be worth exploring as a side project. And, and some guys in the studio got into that so much, they would just have, even without me and Mark, they would just have creative brainstorms around what they could do if Five Foot Six was going to do something else. Um, Adam, one of my old designers, shares my space, and he reminded me that that's what they... I mean, I kind of sort of... Um, and he remembered it the other day, but he reminded me that's what they used to do. And there's some classic things in there. So me and Adam have tried to, in fact, when I say tried to, we've maintained it once, tried to sit down and just come up with stupid ideas on post-it notes that we might one day do. We probably will not one day do none of it. But the process of doing it is really fun. And I think the process of doing that benefits the process, your, your creative process of working with client work, really. It's freedom. It's creative I, freedom. I, I wonder sometimes if people are a little intimidated 
by that freedom. When when somebody's uh, developed professionally, working to a brief and with yeah. a set of parameters, yeah, and when, when they suddenly are faced with a blank canvas or a, or a blank sheet of paper and, and could potentially do anything, yeah, people shy away from it a little bit. It's, it's easier yeah. not to confront it's, the blank canvas. It's easier in some ways to in some ways to have some constraint or some brief. For example, with myself now, without a ping pong, which I'm sure we'll get onto later, a lot of the ideas I have are more focused around that. Because they're more focused around that, they're more likely to see the end of uh, sorry, see the end of see 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 the um, light come, day. See the light of day. Thank you very much. Whereas if I have ideas around just absolutely anything, there's kind of there's nothing for it to be part of, and invariably they will just be stories in a in a notepad and not actually not actually go anywhere. So I suppose. That, I would understand that as being a way to avoid doing it if it's, if it's a, you just have choice paralysis. I mean, if yes. you've got a completely blank canvas, you yeah. can do anything. Yes. For us, it, most of what we did at Five Foot Six um, were books. But what the guys came up with in their own wacky little brainstorms had nothing to do with books. But we'd equally sit around the table with lunch. And uh, I think I've come, it was, it was, I'm going to forget the term we gave it, but Sherry, one of our designers, would say something that astounded her, and we would have to try and make it make sense to her. And it was things like the post office. She was like, how the hell does that system work? And for me, I cannot understand how... Like, we've moved into the technical age, and for me, it's easy to fathom how computers do things, because it's all microchips and, and stuff. It's stuff that I don't get at all, so therefore I assume it's, it can be done. But I don't get how the hell... A vinyl a record works. How can you cut a groove in a piece of wax and it contain all the sound of an entire orchestra? Just don't. My mind is blown. Um, so we'd sit around the table and, and have conversations like that as much as we would sit around the table and have conversations about what project we could do. Um, and most of the book ones probably came from myself because I've had that in my own portfolio right through from university. Um, but I quite like the fact that the guys had would sit around and just. What if five foot six could be someone else? I should try and dig them out. Do you know what? As well, the, I think apart from the paralysis of choice, yeah, the other thing I think that prevents people doing something creative outside of work is the feeling that they need yeah. to write a screenplay, yeah, or or a novel, or, yeah. m- or fill a big canvas, yeah. When in fact, doing something on the side yeah. can be as easy as photographing whoever yeah. sits opposite on the bus on the way into work absolutely and I remember yeah. at your recent lecture that I went along to the West yes. of England Design Festival which was a great evening's entertainment <laughs> was the fact that you photographed your food because you used to go to a cafe that always had chips and you ended up yeah uh, I guess photographing food is probably a the most common pastime in the world these days. It is. But, it but for me it was one particular, one particular cafe and yeah. one particular thing that kept happening. Yes. And that's what made it interesting. Uh, and it was a cafe around the corner from our studio called The Shepherdess. And uh, whatever you ordered, whether it be an omelette, a fry-up, or chilli con carne, or whatever, lasagna, um, so something that already had enough carbs going on, you sort of think, I don't really want chips with that. So it'd be like, I'll have a chilli con carne. Obviously, that's meat and rice. No chips, please. But they'd always give you two or three chips with every single dish that you ordered, even if you asked no chips, even if chips wasn't part of the description on the menu. Right. It was like they, it was always like a signature sort of move, yeah. you know. So uh, I thought, that's kind of weird. So I photographed it. But in all honesty, totally pointless and no reason at all. But 
the thing that I think the value that I think something like that has is that it just makes you stop and, and become aware of things around you and, and I think right. that, that was all it was it was documenting something that kept happening because it was quite adapt really mm. um, and that, that's an interesting thing as well when it comes to creativity I think that it's easy living in a city with a phone with headphones and video to shut yourself away yeah I think yeah. and perhaps yeah. it's more necessary yeah. than ever before with the sort of chaos of our lives yeah. and it's probably easier than ever before and often work is born out of some kind of engagement with the world isn't it yeah yeah and, and, and even doing something as simple as photographing <laughs> your lunch is just taking the time to recognise <laughs> something that's happening it's outside ironic, of you. The, the moment you say photographing, like, all I can think of is a million people around the world all at the same time photographing the lunch. It wasn't the best example. <laughs> but uh, I do remember other things from your speech. As well. Yeah, there was there was um, <laughs> there was one that was, uh, and I'm only really saying this because I did it again yesterday, and I haven't done it in about eight years, and it isn't a project, and it isn't worthwhile. And, and it never did see the light of day, apart from in this in this talk I gave. It's a photograph. It feels weird saying it. People through the gaps in the seats in trains, because it's kind of like slightly voyeuristic. I mean, they all you know nothing, nothing wrong with photographs, but you're kind of like it's when someone doesn't think they can be seen because it's in, in, at a weird sort of angle. And uh, I only did it for like two or three photographs and thought, hang on, this is a bit creepy, so I won't carry this idea on. <laughs> Um, but ironically, on my way back from the Dude Lectures yesterday, yeah, hashtag perv or something, I don't know. Um, but it was only of a side profile of their face, so there wasn't, you know, but it was just quite interesting to see this little snippet of someone's expression uh, from, an, from a point of view that's sort of, you know, obscured in a way. You can only see a tiny bit of their face. And then last night I saw myself on the train, uh, one, one seat behind Jeremy Corbyn. So I brought that project back to life just for one photo. A one-off one celebrity a special. one-off celebrity special, exactly. But not a project I, I, I think I would... Uh, yeah, not a project I'd recommend as having any value. But well, again, let's, it's, let's, it's, it's being aware of something that's quite an unusual way to see someone. That, yeah. that alone is all, all it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's move from um, a project which was maybe not of immense value to one I think is really interesting, which is the art of ping-pong. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the art of ping pong and, and what it is? Um, I guess fundamentally it is uh, an, an interest or a passion for ping pong. And rather than sort of just playing ping pong, it's, think, it, it's sort of what you can put into that culture of ping pong. Um, more than just what you can take out of it in a way and I've been into ping pong as a kid but never never then played it as an adult until we got invited to enter or five foot six we were invited to enter this Battle of the Agencies ping pong tournament and we'd never played with each other at work I hadn't played ping pong in probably the best part of 15 years or something and we won this tournament beating a few design agencies and everyone in the studio loved it so I thought well, let's get a table at work uh, and we'll start playing a lot and uh, we used to play ping pong most lunch breaks in the evening, that kind of thing. We used to invite people around to our studio afterwards, play a few tournaments. And around that time, I was uh, a member of Rundem Crew, which was a sort of um, an urban running collective. And it, we would meet on a Tuesday evening 
in the archways under the uh, train in Shoreditch, which was a, a, a Nike space which has just opened up. It's called 1948, I think it's called the Nike Lab now. Uh, and Charlie, the one then founder, said, why don't we try and see what we can use the, the space for on other evenings? But obviously we've got to run it by Nike. So we, I sort of created a, a deck to present to Nike. And this was about this sort of battle of the creative industries, battle of the bragging rights, I think I called it, where designers would take on photographers, would take on uh, fashion designers, would take on filmmakers to see which who out of all these different industries be- would become the top of the pile. And it was to be played on four different tables and we would invite artists to paint these tables and then they would be sold in the evening for charity or auctioned off for charity and I think I called it Slam Uh, and I presented this to Nike and in 2011 they weren't interested in the slightest because ping pong wasn't particularly cool certainly wasn't on their radar as a sport Um, and so that didn't happen but we used to hold more tournaments at work and we had this thing called Pongathon and we used to get agencies around and we just challenged them to a ping pong showdown every now and again uh, so Art of Ping Pong grew out of this kind of love of ping pong and a, a sort of what we could sort of where we could explore and where we could take it. And around that time, we were doing some work for children in need, and um, we put on a tournament for children in need, and we invited ten artists to uh, to paint these ten paddles, and we held this tournament, and we auctioned them off, or sold them via eBay. And the money uh, raised went to children in need. So suddenly we thought, okay, there's something here that's kind of fun. It's a, it's an exploration of, of ping pong, a sort of creative exploration of ping pong. But also, certain parts of it we can raise money for charity. So we thought we'd try and do this auction once a year. Um, and so we've since done five um, five of these charity auctions. Um, but since closing five foot six for myself, it's given me more time to sort of put more thought into what else can we do with ping pong and what other sort of creative exploration can we have around it uh, and it was soon after closing five foot six that we had a little uh, well before closing five foot six we had a little boy um, and I had a ping pong table in the garage and once you have kids eventually they grow out of their high chair grow out their stuff and save it for the next one everything gets dumped in the garage so my table had to go and I thought well, how can I keep a table um, in the house without it really getting in the way Yeah. so I thought the best way is to make a small table and hang it on the wall but disguise it as something that looks pretty and then <laughs> Caroline would be quite happy to have it in the house <laughs> so I win by having a mini table tennis table and she's kind of happy with some, some art on the wall and so I started making these little tables so I started designing these little tables and I worked with this young lad from Kingston University who had graduated who actually graduated in graphic design but he quite enjoyed making things and so he helped me make these first two little tables um, and then since then I've developed them a little bit further developed how the legs work developed them so that they could, you could take them off the wall and they can fold out into, into playable tables within yeah. like 30 seconds so I've now got a product I'd like to take out there and launch yeah. so essentially for me Art of Ping Pong is a, is a creative exploration within the subculture of Ping Pong yeah. and whatever project comes out of that comes out of it um, so whilst Ping Pong is at the core of it I'd like to make sure that there's always some sort of uh, when I can, there's always like a charity project or a charity auction or just something because it's a nice thing to, to sort of build up a little uh, a little business but enable it to um, uh, put, put back as well a little bit. For profit, for purpose. Yeah, that's what I sort of, someone else, a friend of mine has a business where he is, it's a commercial business and they make footballs. Um, and they are footballs, I think, they've got artwork on, so they're very beautiful looking footballs. 
And for every one they sell, they're looking to donate one to, to, to some underprivileged kids or kids in war-torn countries or something. And he, I don't know if he coined it, or I don't know where the phrase comes from, but for profit, for purpose. So it's, it's a business that can, can exist to make its own profit, but it likes to use some of those profits to then do something good. And in his case, the good is donating a certain amount of tables. And in my case, I suppose it's donating a certain amount of my time uh, to put on a, uh, a charity auction of ping-pong paddles working with some great artists. Or even I've got coming up next week uh, with an illustrator, we're taking over a, a bar in Shoreditch called uh, Book Club. And there's a ping-pong room in there, and I'm going to design a new ping-pong table to go in there, and we're going to, with Kelly's illustrations, we're going to uh, put a vinyl on the ping-pong table and lots of wall murals, and I've made a little installation that goes in the wall. Uh, and it's just a fun project. There's, there's no paid part to it, but we, we've created some products that we want to sell. T-shirts, tote bags, zines, that kind of thing, some, some ping-pong bats, actually. Um, and they're to sell for us to recuperate some of our costs from putting the show on, but even something like that, I still want 10% of any sale to go to charity because it's a nice thing to be able to do, really. Yeah. yeah. And one of the great things, I think, about art of ping-pong is, is, is the sort of accidental genesis of it. Mm. It came around all that time ago by getting yeah. on well in, a, in an yeah, exactly. agency yeah. table tennis match and you still had it sort of bubbling away on the side where you were doing your your sort of paid work but now yeah. it's become a thing on its own which occupies a lot of your time and, <coughs> and for people who haven't seen the bats and the tables they're really beautiful objects yeah. and what's wonderful is that it's an outlet for your creativity for other people's the designers who illustrate the bats yeah. it's something um it's kind of a sociable sport, isn't it? Big yeah. box fun, yeah. and it's and it's it's making a positive contribution. So yeah, I think it's a really nice thing. I think it's a nice thing. I mean, yeah. I think it's. It, it, I like the fact that it's uh, it's kind of free to do what it wants. Um, and I, I literally, as you know, we just had lunch with Tom Hull, a photographer friend of mine. Um, and between us, we're going to do a little study of the, sort of the, the community tables that pop up in parks, either around the country or around London, and photograph the sort of subculture and the community around those tables and do a little sort of study. And That's we don't it. know what we're going to do with it necessarily, yeah. um, but it, it might be an exhibition, uh, it might just be some prints, it might be a book, uh, who knows? But it's just nice. I think we said earlier, once you've got some kind of... Uh, skeleton of an idea or a concept it's easier to put things on it yeah. rather than being a completely blank canvas what creative outlet do I want to do this year god I've got a million ideas I don't know where to start I don't know which one to, to do and, and if you don't have an outlet you sort of it's hard to have focus yes. so I guess ping pong means I mean, that sort of centre of gravity yeah, I still have all the other ideas but yeah. the ones that are, I can focus around ping pong are more likely to happen because there's already a momentum with, with doing work on it yes. at the moment. And I, I think that's really lovely to hear as well, that you're doing the project with Tom. Yeah. You have no sense of ultimately no. what it's, what it, what, no, where it's, it will go exactly. or, or where it will be, but you're just yeah. doing it for the sake of doing, which yeah, I think I mean, is, a, is, a, is a great thing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the people that you've worked with. So you've collaborated mm. with some well-known artists, designers, illustrators, people like Jake and Dinos Chapman. Yeah. Noma Bar, yep. Morag Myerskoff, yep. Mr. Bingo, yep. God bless him. Yep. <laughs> He's quite handy at ping pong. I, He's I, not I, bad I at ping pong, actually. I like, at having, I like having a go against Mr. Bingo. I call him the wall. 
because he just gets everything back. He's not very attacking, but he just gets everything back. And when I want to have a good hit, I say, when, when's the wall next for you? Yeah. Let me go and have a little hit at the table. Somewhere. I would have thought yeah. in those shorts, he might, he might incapacitate his movement a little bit. He's quite a nimble character. Yeah, he really. manages to get around even character. with those tight yeah. shorts. On. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how is, that, that must be quite a, quite a fun experience to contact these people that you admire and, yeah. and, 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 how, and seeing what they come back with. It started off, I guess, illustrators essentially that we knew or had worked with. Um, and then once we'd done it once or twice, I just think we got more confidence to reach out to other people. And essentially because that project, the charity auction, clues in the title, that project, the money's going to charity, I think people are, are quite giving of their time. Um, and so there's something, I think, that appeals to them. It's, a, it's a, an unusual project, maybe, to be asked, but um, they know it's for a good cause. So uh, I've been amazed at how many brilliant artists and people I have an enormous amount of respect for have said yes and want to get involved. Um, I'm quite privileged to have sort of had them in the lineup. Really. Yeah. It's quite an, it's it's a it's a big hitting list. It's it's an amazing list, yeah. yeah. And also it's nice because I think when you create curate each one, it's nice to have a few big names because I think that helps with the, the, the raising money side of it. Um, but it's also nice to champion some sort of lesser-known talent or discover some new talent and, and build a sort of list of 25 or so artists around that mix. Mm. Um, and even working with artists in, from different disciplines, like we had in last year's one, Zuza Mengham, who works in resin, uh, Emma Bruin, who's a fashion designer who specialises in faux fur. Um, there are lots of different people who now deconstruct and reconstruct the bat. I don't even use the bat in the first place. Like Sebastian Cox did an absolutely stunning bat made of, I think, three different types of wood. It even had the bark around the edge of the wood. And it was beautiful. Um, to Ryan Gander, the conceptual artist that I think explores a lot of humour in his work, who uh, I sent him the blank paddle to work on or work, work from or something, and he just sent me a, a, a chopping board back in the post. <laughs> Uh, and that was it and at first I was like oh you're kidding what is that and I thought that's fucking genius that's what that is and so it took me a while to get my head around it yeah. especially because in my audience I, I don't know I thought I had such a small audience they might not know who he was in a way but I mean he's extremely successful contemporary artist with an OBE so I think I was being a bit naive to think that it might sort of wash past my audience but uh, it went for it's the most expensive bat that's got an auction went for about a thousand pounds but it's a £10 shopping board he bought off Amazon. So, uh, just <laughs> not, anymore. Fact, not anymore. It's a yeah, Just the fact that on, an artist doesn't just put their name to it, but puts a conceptual context around something. Yes. Can turn its value from 10 quid to 1,000 quid and it goes to charity. That's pretty cool. Yes. What's the website for Art of Ping Pong? What is it? What's yeah. the URL? Or, yeah, or? URL. Uh, it's probably the world's longest URL. Uh, Theartofpingpong.co.uk. Okay. People can check it out. Yeah. Yeah, and what, what, what are your hopes for the future of uh, Art of Ping Pong? Art of Ping Pong. I don't know, really. See where it goes. Yeah. As long as it's fun, uh, and as long as it, um, I feel like it's sort of moving in a direction, then I, I would like to. Uh, for me, it's really fun making products. Yeah. I've never, in, well, I've <laughs> so never made products. Going back to the chess pieces, almost in, exactly. Uh, almost gone full circle to getting back out of graphic design. Yeah. And back into just things. Like I said, that. Uh, Graphic design wasn't... I've always felt a Ford as a graphic designer. 
because I well I didn't get into it because I had a particular album cover that fucking knocked me sideways as a kid right. or I knew this graphic designer and I thought his work was amazing I didn't know a single graphic designer when I went to college and I probably couldn't name more than two or three when I left college and yet I came out wanting to do graphic design because it was all about communication and all about self-expression but that doesn't have to be graphic design it just became the tool that I used to, to express that and I'm quite I quite like the fact now that the art of ping pong gives me a creative outlet it doesn't have to be just graphic design I enjoy putting on the events and the exhibitions I enjoy the surprise of seeing what comes back I enjoy curating a different list of artists for the charity auction I enjoy designing a table that I could see if, see if sells as a product um, I mean I have no idea really but the feedback I've had on the tables has been quite positive and even though they haven't launched yet because um, I'm going back to I think we talked very loosely at the beginning about slowing down Normally, I'd like to do things very quickly, but the product development process has taught me how to slow down again because you can't rush it. And so, as a result, I'm slowing down the launch by default because the product takes time to develop. But I've realized I want to now be quite considerate in the way that they launch. So, they haven't yet even launched, but I think I've sold five or six tables through people getting in touch and just saying they want one and they want one now. So, in a way, I'm learning a bit of the manufacturing process, packaging process, deliverables process in fulfilling a handful of orders while mm. I go through it and that's a good learning experience in its own right yeah yeah so um, I would like for me it's as long as I'm having fun around ping pong and as long as it gives me a bit of time to explore some sort of charitable initiative um, then that's probably enough for me yeah I'd like to finish by just talking a little bit about your own creative process and uh-huh. digging a bit deeper in there mm-hmm. one of the reasons it's lovely to talk to you today is because you've done a range of stuff from making figures out of toxic uh, <laughs> metal through to um, ping pong I have come to the opinion that, that creativity isn't so much a skill as a state of mind and one of the reasons this podcast is called The Wind Thieved Hat is because I read a nice quote which I mentioned to you over lunch from the book John Connolly which describes Stan Laurel and it says he's tried to write more gags but the remaining pages of his legal pad remain bare some days you have to walk away and let the gags come to you instead of running after them like a man in pursuit of a wind-thieved hat how do you find your ideas? Uh, I think personal ideas go back to that thing of observation of the world around you um, whether that's problem solving or just seeing something that looks a bit funny looks a bit quirky and, 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 and seeing where it takes you but if it's in terms of a client brief I feel like I need to fully submerge myself in the brief and their world as much as I possibly can and doing a, a lot of research and then let it percolate around for a little bit don't try to, a bit like actually what you just said don't just force an idea just want, once you've immersed yourself in the world of the, the client's sort of brief, let that then take a bit of time. Chat to people, talk to people, talk to other people within their world, experience some of the experience being a consumer of their product or something, and, and, and give yourself time for the idea to come forward. The difficult thing with that, I think, is that in today's world, they want the idea yesterday and they want it fast, and I don't think the creative process is as respected. I think it, the creative process takes time unless you are simply regurgitating what you already know and or almost like applied, just applying your experience back. 
and whilst I think your experience is valuable, you're always going to sort of do what you know in a way. And I think actually sort of letting it sit around and take time is, is, is missed a bit these days. And was that a factor in you closing five foot six, the change in the, uh, in the culture? It's funny, there's a lot of factors, I think, for closing five foot six. In many ways, I think... When it first... The seed of, of us closing it, I noticed that uh, Mark felt quite stressed, maybe a bit... Uh, uh, I don't know, he, he seemed... He seemed a bit burnt out, and I just said to him, let's take a day out of the studio. Let's not talk about the problems you've got to deal with. Let's not have an agenda. Let's go for a walk. Let's talk about stuff in a more helicopter view, and let's see what comes of it. Um, and we did that, and it was actually a really enjoyable afternoon. We sort of went back to the places we used to hang out when we were a lot younger, when I was working at Brown's, and he was working at Roundall. We sort of hang out around London Bridge and Tower Hill. and go to, We went to the old pubs we used to go to on a Friday night. And, it, and conversation just naturally came out. And for Mark, I think, um, and I don't want to speak for him, because it, it, uh, everything was his decision. Um, I think he'd just had enough of being all consumed by one thing. Yeah. And his wife at that time was interested in going back to Yorkshire. And that sort of opened the door to five or six, not maybe being the thing he does first of his life. But he just wasn't sure whether he should leave or not. And I think after all our sort of um, quite heartfelt conversations that afternoon, it came to him that he wanted to leave. And that then left me with the option, do we close it together or do we keep it? Um, and I was quite keen at that point for change. I think I was probably... Um, 16 People isn't a big company. But it, if you, it's not yet big enough for you to sit back you're almost involved in absolutely everything all the time permanently and you don't really get to think about where it can pivot change what you can do to it you're just constantly trying to keep it going and I thought if Mark's going to bloody leave that's me on my own doing it well how the fuck am I going to do that and so it kind of weighed on me that I thought actually I'll be doubling my stress um, Mark obviously would be entitled to some, some, you know, some money from the company so I'll be doubling my stress Harvey my bank balance, or however it would have played out, we didn't get that far. And potentially, Mark was very close to a couple of the clients. I thought, this is quite risky. But I want to change anyway. I want something different. And I always felt I could make five at six move in, its, move in different directions. But I thought, you know what? We started it together, let's close it together. And we're young enough to see what life brings thereafter. And, and that's what we did. And because there was no urgency to close it, in many respects we closed it at the peak of our powers. We actually decided to close it about two weeks after our new website was completed, which at the time felt like a total waste of money. But actually it was perfect because that website reflects exactly who we were at the peak of five foot six. And so I kind of would like that website to stay live forever because that was what we created. And if that disappears, then kind of everything disappears in a way. There is no obvious legacy. Mm-hmm. And so we closed it, I think we told the team, let's say it was August, I don't remember, uh, and we didn't close the doors until uh, effectively December. So everyone, by the time we had done it, had managed to find the next thing to move on to, whether that be freelance or full-time work or whatever, they, and everyone could leave when that next thing was right for them. So we just whittled it down over time. 
Uh, and I'm quite proud of how we closed it and remained friends with it. Me and Mark remained friends. We didn't have a shareholders agreement. All the team, we still have reunions every six months or something. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of uh, blueprint for how to do it, actually. How to close? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot, so many people say, why didn't you sell it? Fucking hell, that would have taken forever, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Finding right. someone to buy it, God knows where you start, but that could probably take you a couple of years. Easily. Working out the notice of when you get to yeah. leave is probably two or three. I'd still be doing it. Yeah. And yet I would have wanted to... I'd be, I'd be forced to be waiting for a decision I'd made for about yeah. five years. I think the way you did it sounds yeah. like the it most was, elegant way yeah, one, could, one, one could finish yeah. a business. It was sad telling the team. Yeah. Uh, and some clients we'd had for a long time, like Ben and Jerry's we had for le- best ball, almost the whole 11 yeah. years. So it was difficult telling some of the clients, um, but most difficult telling the team. Yeah. But I, th- I think we did it well. We did it over a decent period of time, and everyone, it all worked out fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are your creative ambitions for the future now? Probably depends what day you ask me, I guess. Uh, I, know, I know right now you just like to go to bed. I, I'm definitely doing this on the back end of the do lectures <laughs> is uh, puts you in a different mindset. Um, and in the way the do lectures has, has been part of that process for me, I went last year, as you know, and I went this year, because I still want that change that I wanted when we closed five foot six. And whilst I enjoy still the creative process of working with some clients, I, I want more than that as well. And Art of Ping Pong does that in many respects, but it, that's just, that, that is a labour of love at the moment. It's, it, it's a creative outlet, but it doesn't sustain itself in any shape or form. And it may never do, it may never be more than just a creative outlet, Let, let's see. Um, but I think I would like to do only recently have I thought teaching appeals to me and I'd like, I'd like to do more things I'd like to explore teaching I'd like to do more workshops I think in that talk in particular I think for me one issue I've got with graphic design is that because I was, became quite good at it I, I learned how to people please through the tool of graphic design and I don't think people pleasing for too long a period of time is a great thing so there's something around people-pleasing and creative freedom that I would like to explore. And that may be a workshop, it may be talks, it may just be, I just need to explore it for myself to help me move on to the next thing. But certainly, I feel like I would like to explore workshops, talks, mm-hmm. teaching, that kind mm-hmm. of side of things. Consultancy work, yeah, more than deliverables-based graphic design. In that I, mean, yes. I haven't been hands-on for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and the, the most hands-on I get these days is with Art of Ping Pong. Yeah. And that's probably enough for me. Well, there's something quite nice, isn't there, when you've uh, been at it for a few years and sort of ducked and dived and been around the track a couple of times and experienced the highs and the lows, yeah. to share some of the things that you've yeah. learned yeah. and discovered yeah. about the best ways of, 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 of doing things. Yeah. It, Maybe it's not the best ways, but, <laughs> but my, my, my or, or ways, ways to avoid. I think it's interesting. People that have interesting backgrounds to me make potentially good teachers or workshop creators or something because it th- th- there's a unique path they've gone on to get to that point and I've got a friend Nick who is a uh, film producer director but he's also been uh, a stylist he's also uh, I've now completely forgotten his background I've got a mental blank but it, he he got into the creative industries not by going to university and has worked for lots of different people uh, and I've always quite liked his t- 
take on things creatively. And, and I think it's his journey that's got him to where he is that has made that quite engaging. Uh, and I think mine, with not in the slightest being interested in graphics, always felt like a bit of a fraud in it, or, or what they call it these days, a imposter syndrome, because I yeah. didn't know any graphic designers, and I was more interested in making things and objects. Uh, and having sort of learned art in a jewellery shop, not learned art at school and stuff. So I think there's an interesting mm. backstory there that could create something quite unique to share or to work on with other people. Yeah. And that's, that's probably what I want to do more of. But I haven't yeah. worked out exactly what that is at the moment. Yeah. Or where that takes I, me. We, we've had a similar path, I think, in, yeah. in, in, in some respects. Um, with me having run my own agency for a while, though, the um, spectacular combustion at the end of it was uh, was rather less elegant than the closing <laughs> okay. of, of, of yours. Do you want to uh, tell me a little well, bit more I'm not about being that? interviewed or? at the moment. Oh, I'm, I'm the one asking the questions. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think you you know you um, uh, you get to a certain age and mm. you recognise that there are some stuff, some things yeah. that you know about yourself, yeah. who you are, yeah. and you know about the world. Yeah. And I think one feels a responsibility to, to yeah. act on those to the yeah. best yeah. Um, or, that your situation allows. And, yeah. and I think to a little, to a certain extent, we're, 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 we're both yeah. doing that. Me doing yeah. this podcast is... Yeah, it's all part of it. It's all part of it. And it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that, um, that in a way, when we came in this rather noisy building <laughs> um, we saw one of your ping pong tables which is a yes. physical object that you yes. made just as your lead figures yes. um, that you made yeah. all, all that time ago in, yeah. the, in the village in, 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 in Leicestershire That's um, right. yeah, they're, they're, they're a physical object and I'm interested to, as a final question yeah. to say now uh, I, I still don't know how old you are but in, uh, how old are you? Uh, 43 Yeah. so now as a, a 43 year old if you were to go back into the back room of um, the jewellery shop, right? Where this young okay. lad, I'm imagining was, it, yeah. was, was, was sketching away in the, in, in the storeroom, desperately trying to um, yeah. build up a portfolio of uh, of artwork yeah. uh, to progress in further education. What might you say to him? Uh, be wary of losing sight of what you want to create. I've got this thing about people-pleasing, I think, at the moment. It's something I want to explore a lot, a lot deeper. Um, I think it's just making... Yeah, be, be wary of... The fallout from that. I think I'm quite a sensitive soul, and I think when I get to that... Trying to... I think creators put themselves out there in every single creative project they work on, whether it's for a client or for yourself. And so you're desperately trying to make sure that person is happy with what you've done. And it's constant. Because the moment that job's done, it's the next one, and it's the next one, and it's the next one. Unremitting. Yeah. And I think if you really care about it, you really care about the work, I think that's fucking exhausting. Some people, I think, are able to perhaps remove themselves from the process a little bit more. or I don't know how they do it. But for me, that constant need to make someone happy through my work is fucking tiring. Yeah. And so I'd be said just to make sure you don't lose sight of doing something for yourself. And I suppose I have done all that all that time with those with those side projects. So yeah. that's kind of maybe where it came from. Yeah. Um, and also to not be afraid to change. I don't think at my core I'm a graphic designer. 
and I've been doing it for, I would say, probably too long. And I'd like to have changed, pivoted, explored something different earlier and seen where the path would have gone. So I feel actually blessed that we closed five foot six without knowing that was what was going to happen. Yes. I feel like I've got another opportunity to be that kid in that back storeroom and go, you know what, what are you going to do now with what you've learned or what you're learning and see where it takes you. Yeah. It's a great answer and a great way Thank to finish. You. Thank you. Well, on the door slamming in the background. Yeah, yeah. 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 At least the techno stop. That was fun. Good. Thanks, LG. Yeah. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Pleasure. man. Thank, Thank you. you. The lovely Algie Batten, what a gent. Since we recorded our conversation, the Art of Ping Pong tables have officially launched. Search Art of Ping Pong and you'll find them. That's all from me. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>